Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Good to be worshiping with you. Thank you, Brian, for leading us well. Um, Songs he chose set up the passage that we are going to be uh, looking at this morning well, and it fed my soul just being there thinking about uh, this particular passage that we will be in this morning. So I appreciate him and the team for leading us this morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we will be looking at verse 14 through 21 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, not to worry, you can raise your hand, and we have someone in the back who will bring one to you, or you can get up and go to the back and pick one up off the sound booth in the back. And if you don't have one, we offer that to you as a gift this morning and encourage you to do that and read through that. But our focus this morning is going to be on a prayer from Paul, the author of this letter of Ephesians. Um, I wanted Corey to read the entire book of Ephesians because it is a fantastic book, but we didn't have that much time. So I encourage you to take what he read this morning, what I talk about this morning, and go this week and read through this book. It is a rich, rich letter that he has given. We know that Paul was a great man of God, but we also know that he was a great man of prayer. Paul prayed often. And God drastically changed his life, and he powerfully used him until he called him home. And I would say that if you want to learn how to pray, then you should read the prayers of Paul, for they will change your life. Particularly, they will change your prayer life. In D.A. Carson's book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, I encourage you to get that book. He goes through the prayers of Paul throughout the New Testament, and it's a fabulous book to read through and just help to explain through his prayers what some of his prayers are, why he prays some of the things that he prays. We know that Paul prayed often because we see many of them in his letters, but we also know that Paul prayed with great Passion. How do I know that? I just know that Paul was a very passionate man about everything he did. So I can only imagine that he was passionate when he came to the Lord in prayer. He was passionate in his prayer for the love of his brothers and sisters in the family of God. And as you read through your prayers, you will notice who Paul prayed for. And he prayed for the family of God, his brothers and sisters in Christ. But you will also notice that he didn't necessarily pray for their physical needs, although I'm sure that they had physical needs, each of them. But he always seemed to pray for the spiritual needs of his brothers and sisters. When you pray for someone, how do you pray? How do you pray when you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Paul gives us a great example for us this morning in this passage, so let's read that together in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the example that Paul has given us. We thank you for this prayer, Father. And I pray this morning that I would step aside and that your spirit would speak through me powerfully this morning. And I pray that you would open up the ears, the hearts, the minds of each individual here to hear this important truth and hear the importance of prayer and the prayer for others, Father. So I ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work this morning through the preaching of your word. I ask this in your name. Amen. There are two things that are vital to our growth in Christ and in our Christian walk. If you want to grow more and more into the image of Christ, and I hope that is true for each of you today, there are two things that you must do. The first thing that you must do is read the Word of God, all right? And you must read the Word of God regularly, all right? And more than just checking off a box that you did it each day, but read it to understand who God is, read it to understand who Christ is and what Christ did for you, to understand who we are in contrast with Christ. And second of all, you must spend a great amount of time in prayer. There's nothing more important than spending time in the Word and spending time in prayer. For it is the reading of the Word of God, and that is how our Father speaks to us. And it is spending time in prayer that we are able to talk to our Heavenly Father. And this should be as natural as eating and sleeping to us. Because there's typically not a day goes by that we do not eat or sleep, right? Unless maybe you're a college student and you're too broke to eat, right? <clears throat> then you come over to Mama West's house and we feed you, right? <clears throat> or maybe you uh, waited a little bit too long for the college students and others in seminary and that paper is due at 8 o'clock the next morning and you haven't started yet and it's midnight. Yes, they're shaking their heads. They've been there. I've been there. But typically we don't go without eating or sleeping. And why do we not go without eating or sleeping? Because what happens is we become weak and we can become sick. When we are not in the Word of God and when we are not spending time in prayer, we can become weak spiritually and we lose our strength. We can fall into temptations. We can fall to sin. We can fall away from the church and even worse, we can fall away from the faith altogether. And I, and I speak this just from experience, not in my own life, but when I have counseled people in the past, we see that a result of sin in their lives or a result of things that are going on or them falling away from the church, I always go back to asking them if they are, have read the Word recently, if they have prayed, if they have fallen away from the church. And many times the answer is yes. They were thriving in the church, but because of these things, they have fallen away. And this is not the only reason, but this is one reason because of the importance of reading Scripture and praying. <clears throat> we are quick to, quick to read whatever is on social media, what others have to say. We are quick to talk to each other through our phones, through our texting and other resources or other avenues, and we crave those things. But I ask you, are you quick to hear from the Lord and what he has to say to you through his word? 
Are you quick to talk to your heavenly Father? Do we crave these things in our lives as believers? Prayer and the Word of God are vital to our faith. And I know that we all know that this is true, but do we spend time in the Word? Do we spend time praying? Do we pray without ceasing? 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which is having this attitude of prayer throughout the day as we go about our business. And even more to the point of today's message, how do you pray? And who do you pray for? Is it usually for yourself and all the things that you have going on in your life? Or do you put great effort, as we see in the example of Paul, for praying for other people? When you do pray for others, what do you pray for? How do you shape your prayers when you are praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? We could have this example. Lord, I thank you for this beautiful day. I want to pray for Joe. I pray you would be with him, that, you would he, that he would stop being angry. I pray that he would become more involved in church. Amen. And I'm not saying that anything is wrong with that prayer. Many of us in this room pray that off, like that often. And again, I'm not saying that is wrong. But here, Paul's prayer for Joe. All right? And I've kind of taken this from the passage today and how Paul might apply this. I don't know if he would have. But Father, I humbly come before you today. For Joe is hurting. Joe is struggling. I pray that according to the riches of your glory, that you would strengthen Joe with power through your spirit that is at work in his inner being. I pray that you would strengthen his faith and that you would dwell within his heart, helping him to know the greatness of your love, a love that surpasses all understanding, a love that is root or that he would be rooted and grounded in that love. May you fill him with all the fullness of God. Now to you, Lord, who is able to do even more than we can ask or think according to your power that is at work in Joe's life. Do a mighty work in him. And may all glory be to you throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is this how you pray? Do you strive? Do you desire to pray like this for others? Do you want to be a prayer warrior for the Lord? I hope that the answer is yes to that question. Then I would say that we need to pray. And I would say that we need to pray a lot. Just do it. Just pray and you will get better. I encourage you to read the prayers that are scattered throughout the Bible from great men of God. I encourage you to listen to godly men and women pray. And then just do it. Oh, how we need to be praying for one another. And we don't even need to know every detail of every situation that's happening in the life of the person. Paul didn't give specifics here in this particular prayer because God already knows what these needs are. And that's not we say that we don't pray for specific things at times. But God knows them. And when we pray the way that Paul has laid out for us in this prayer... Everything that someone may be going through is kind of covered. We simply must be faithful to pray and let God take care of the rest. And I understand, as I have talked to many people, that you struggle to take time to pray. And many of you just kind of struggle praying in general. 
And really, I struggle to pray like this at times, but mainly it's because I do not put enough effort into my own prayers. I don't give it enough time. I get rushed in life and do not pay attention as I should. And many of you may feel that same struggle in your own prayer life. Well, I want to share with you a quote that I came across a little over a month ago, and it's out of the book I referenced, um, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, again by D.A. Carson. And it says this, it says, pray until you pray. That is Puritan advice. It does not simply mean that persistence should mark much of our uh, praying, though admittedly that is a point to scripture that scriptures repeatedly make. What they meant is that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. Such advice is not to become an excuse for new legalism. There are startling examples of very short, rapid prayers in the Bible, Nehemiah 2.4, for example. But in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring for the front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. He says, pray until you pray. I found this very helpful over the past month. For when I pray, I can easily be distracted even in the earlier times of my prayer. But I found that the longer I pray, the more I stay focused more deep and intense my prayers become. And although this is a short prayer that Paul has given us here and very powerful, I'm certain that there were times in his life when he spent a great amount of time in prayer. I'm sure that he spent a lot of time praying for others as we see. And we know and we can see the example of even our Lord in his prayer life as we see many times in Scripture that he prayed all night long. And I'm sure that I don't need to remind you that if our Heavenly Father needed to spend time in prayer in extended times in prayer, how much more should we spend time in prayer for ourselves, prayers for others? And this morning, I really want to stress that we are not only to pray for ourselves, but that we are to pray for each other. When we look at the prayers of Paul, when we look at the prayers of Christ and the prayers of many others, they are praying for, they are pleading for others. And I hear the excuses, well, I don't know what to pray for. Well, if you don't know what to pray for in somebody's life, I just encourage you to ask. Just ask, and people will give you things to pray for. There are enough requests in this room to keep us on our knees for a really long time. And not necessarily with bad things. But maybe you have no idea what someone needs. You can pray this prayer that Paul prayed, and the Lord will hear you, and he already knows the needs of these people. <clears throat> so let's go now and look more closely at this prayer that Paul has given us. This is the second prayer from Paul in this letter. The first prayer you heard um, in chapter 1, which Corey read to you earlier. And you will notice some similarities within these two prayers. But in this prayer, you will notice that he is praying that they would be enabled to do what he prayed in the first prayer back in chapter 1. 
You will notice that he actually started praying uh, in this verse, starting in verse 1. And then he was distracted a little bit. And he comes back in verse 14 and says, but for this reason. Now, Paul got distracted there, I think, but in a good way. Because he was taking his mind back to the goodness of Christ and the work that he has done. And then back in verse 14, he states, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And we say, well, what reason did he have to bow his knees before the Father? Well, it was because of the reconciling work of Christ. He just stated earlier in his letter that positionally, the Gentile and the Jewish believers are now, in chapter 2, one new man in place of two, so making peace. The Gentile Christians are now incorporated into the body of Christ, and Paul greatly desires that they may genuinely know and that they may experience the love of Christ in a great way and exhibit that love towards one another. He is praying that they may use their spiritual privileges to the fullest extent. So it is for this reason that Paul goes on to say, I bow my knee before the Father. Bowing of the knees was not a normal position uh, for, or a normal posture for prayer among the Jews. The normal position would have been to stand, and we see the examples of this in Luke 18 in the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. But even though standing was not the normal position, we are not to say that Paul is wrong here for saying this. And if you read some commentators, some would say that he was not actually kneeling, but it was more about the posture of the heart, and I believe that is important. But I believe that Paul was on his knees before the Father pleading for God's people. And again, this was not wrong. I believe that for Paul and for us in our prayers, it shows an earnestness. It shows humility and a reliance on God the Father. We see this when Ezra confessed Israel's sin of penitence in Ezra 10. It says, while Ezra prayed and made a confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. In Matthew 26, Jesus in the garden right before he was arrested says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed. And in Acts 7, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and falling to his knees. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. As we look through scripture, it does not lay out rules for the positions that we should pray in. We can pray standing. We can pray sitting. We can pray walking. We can pray running. And it's only January 12th, so I'm sure everybody is still on their running track, right, from the new year. We can pray in all these positions. We can even pray on our knees. We can pray on our faces. Yet for me, it seems that being on my knees brings a greater sense of humility because I am bowing before my Creator. I am bowing before the sovereign Lord of the universe. It seems to represent this attitude of submission while in the presence of the one with such a high rank. And authority. These are just some of the things that drives us to our knees that we read in these earlier passages. And when things really get bad, it seems that that is the position that we tend to go to. And I think that's what Paul was doing in this prayer. But Paul prays as we read on from the Father of whom every family in heaven or on earth is named. 
And this simply refers to the saints of every age. It refers to those who are still on earth and those who are now in heaven. These are the only ones who derive their names from God the Father. You see, believers are all part of one spiritual family of God, bringing together many members, but only one Father. And we come now to the request of Paul for the church and what I want you to take away from this morning. There are four requests that I see here. There are that they may know the Spirit's power. He prays that the Spirit may dwell within their hearts. He prays that they may know the abounding love of Christ. And he prays that they may know the fullness of God. And these are not four individual prayers, but each request that Paul gives, it builds on the next. One request leading up to the next one. He prays that the inner man may have spiritual strength. And gaining this strength will lead to a deeper experience with Christ. And this deeper experience with Christ will enable them to get a hold of God's love, to understand as much as our finite minds can the great love of Christ. And these three requests will result in the last request where he prays that we would be filled unto all the fullness of God. And here in verse 16, we see this first request. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So point one is that they may know the spirit's power. Paul starts off strong here and he says that according to the riches of his glory. Brothers and sisters, God is rich and he is rich in every way. And we see an example of this in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Turn back. With me, if you would like, or maybe on the same page you are currently. But in verse 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There are two ways in which a rich person can give. He can either give according to his riches or he can give out of his riches. The founder and CEO of Amazon, if he were to give someone $1,000 or even $100,000... He would be simply giving out of his wealth. But if he were to give someone $10 million, which is not much because he's worth about $117 billion, he would be giving according to his wealth. And the more one has, the more one must give to qualify according to his wealth. So with that in mind, think about Paul's request once again. He says, according to the riches of his glory... God's riches are limitless. There are no ends to God's riches. Corey read for us in chapter 1, and you heard many of those riches, but let me remind you of some of them once again. In verse 3, it says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
In verse 4, He chose us before the foundation of the world. In verse 7, we see His redemption. We see His forgiveness that He has given us. And not only given us these things, but He has lavished these things upon us. In verse 9, He has made known to us the mystery of His will. And in verse 11, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. And we could go on and on through the rest of the chapter and through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But Paul is praying that because of these riches, that through these riches, that they may be strengthened. How many of you in this room could stand to be strengthened some today? The answer is really all of us. We all, in some area of our lives, could stand to be strengthened. You see, on our own, we are weak. On our own, we are frail. With everything that comes our ways, sometimes it seems on a daily basis, we can often get beat up or feel like we're getting beat up pretty bad. There are people who need strength due to difficult marriages, There are people who uh, need strength due to difficulty within their finances. Sometimes it's not even their own problem or their own fault. It's due to a job layoff or different situations that are happening. People who are raising children need strength. Not maybe the Lord has not allowed you to have children yet. And you need strength to help to get you through that. Maybe a sickness of a loved one, and you need strength to help get you through. The tension, maybe, between you and a loved one. Maybe the death of a loved one. The list could go on and on about things that we need strength to help us carry through. And there's probably everyone in their own ways could be strengthened in some way today. And not just by any strength. No, he prays that they would be strengthened with power, and that is the power of God. You see, the power of God gets results. The power of God is a perfect power. That same power that Paul prays for in this uh, passage here is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that gives us life. And it is this power that works through the Spirit within our inner beings. When we face these things on our own, it can be too much. We need to be strengthened with his power. But sadly, many believers are never strengthened with this power. They never truly know this power that Paul is speaking of. That's why this request is so important. Because it is only God who can change the inner soul of a person. But even with this prayer, we have work to do. And that work consists of what I spoke of earlier, regular reading of the word, regular time in prayer. And this kind of strength will not happen instantly. Just as you spend many hours and months inside the gym trying to become strong, so it will be that we need to spend much time taking in the word of God, much time praying, much time being in the fellowship of the local body of believers that you will become strong So Paul prays that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, taking us to the next request, that Christ may dwell within their hearts in verse 17. And you read this at first glance and you might think, well, why would would Paul be praying for Christ to dwell within their hearts? 
Are they not already believers? Doesn't Christ come and dwell within the heart of the believer at the moment of salvation? And the answer is yes, he does. But this dwell would be for Christ to settle down within your heart, to take up permanent residence. And even more, it is for Christ to have this sense of being at home within your life. One commentator says it well. It says, under the Spirit's control, our lot, or under the Spirit's control, our lives, Jesus cannot be comfortable there, but only stays like a tolerated visitor. So he is speaking of is not necessarily Christ's presence within our lives, but of the quality of his presence in our lives. Robert Munger in his booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, he pictures the Christian life as a house through which Jesus goes from room to room. Jesus begins in the library, which is the mind, and Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things. And he proceeds to throw out these things, replacing them with the word of God. And then he moves to the dining room, which is the dining room of appetite, where he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. There where he might find pride or wealth, fame. And in place of these things and such things as prestige, materialism, and lust, he puts humility, meekness, love, and other virtues for which the believers should hunger and thirst for. And then he goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities, those that you are meeting with, the activities that you are doing. And he continues to plead, uh, proceed on through the workshop where he sees all the gifts that you have been given. And he sees that only toys are being made, nothing of eternal value at all. And into the closet he goes that reeks of a horrible smell. This is where the hidden sins are kept. And he cleans out this closet and he continues to go on throughout the house cleaning these things out. You see, it is only when he has cleaned every room, closet, nook and cranny of sin and foolishness that he can settle down and be at home in your life. And I'm not trying to say that you need to have a perfect, clean life for him to dwell within you. But what is in your life that is not good? What is in your life that you're hiding in the closet? <clears throat> what are your appetites? Who are you hanging out with? What activities are you participating in? Is Christ comfortable in your life? Yes, when Christ saves you, he at that time enters into your life. But he cannot live there in comfort. He can't settle down until he's been cleansed of the worldliness and filled with goodness and his will. And it is through faith that this takes place. We must turn our lives over to a sovereign and holy God in faith and trust in him as he exercises lordship over every area of our lives. We don't accept him as Savior and then allow him to be Lord at a later time. He should be and is Savior at the moment of salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So he prays that we are strengthened 
and that Christ would dwell in their hearts. He then prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is point number three, that they may know the abounding love of Christ. When you experience the power of Christ and he is dwelling comfortably in your life, you can't help but experience the love of Christ. And that love will overflow out of your life into those who are around you. We must know the love of Christ. And we must have this love of Christ within our hearts. For Romans 13 says, love is the fulfilling of the law. And Colossians 3.14 says, we are to put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As believers, we know this love because we have experienced this love. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you and I hated God. We were enemies of God. And yet he loved us so much that he sent his son to earth for the purpose of dying for the sins of his people. And in coming, Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8. If you are a believer this morning, you know this love. If you are a believer, you have experienced this love firsthand. If you are here today, and you have not known the love of Christ, I want you to know that you can experience the perfect love of Christ. You can find me or one of the other pastors. You can ask someone around you, and we would be happy to share with you what this love is about. We would be happy to share with you the gospel and how it can change your life drastically. Paul continues on and says in verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love. See, love is the soil in which we function as Christians. Love is the foundation on which we function. And I think the point is pretty clear here. Paul desires that their roots go deep into God's love and that their lives are built on the foundation of God's love. There are two pictures here to kind of help us understand this. First, we have a tree with its roots that have gone deep, deep into the ground, similar to maybe to that of a white oak tree that is strong and the deep roots are deep into the ground. A tree that develops strong roots, deep roots, that can, is a structure that can withstand heavy storms and winds without toppling over to the ground. And second, we have that as a solid foundation. That is to build a building that will last. And when you do that, you need a strong foundation. You will remember that Jesus told a story about two men, one who built his house upon the rock and another who built his house upon the sand. And the house built upon the rock, it weathered the storm. And the builder is called wise. But the house built on the sand collapsed during the storm and the builder 
was called foolish. Paul has prayed that we would know the love of God. He prays that we would be rooted in that love, that we would be grounded in that love, and that his love would fill them and it would support them. And Paul now wants them to understand the vastness of God's love. And he uses four different words here to describe the dimensions of his love. He prays here that they might have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now we look at this passage and we seem to have a contradiction because he says he wants them to comprehend and know his love. Yet at the same time he says there's, it's a love that surpasses knowledge. If the love of God surpasses all knowledge, well, how can we know of this love? Well, although we cannot exhaust the love of Christ in our minds with knowledge, we can truly know the love of Christ. And again, we have experienced it as believer firsthand. And we continue to experience that love each and every day in our lives. We want to grow and to know this love in our everyday lives through the hardships that we have, through the sufferings, and in many other ways. And this is where the four dimensions of love come into play. In the last century, when Napoleon's armies opened up a prison that they had used by the Spanish Inquisition, they found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon that they had kept him in was underground, and by the time they found the body had been long decayed and obviously not recognizable anymore. There was only a chain that was fastened around the ankle bone, which cried out his confinement. But this prisoner, long since dead, had left a witness. On the wall of this small, cold cell, the faithful soldier of Christ had scratched a, a rough drawing of a cross with four words surrounding it in Spanish. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below it was the word for depth. To the left was the word for width. And to the right was the word for length. Even this prisoner and all of his suffering, he wanted to testify to the vastness of God's great love for him. And who knows how many people came after that and saw that and used that in their lives. Well, what did Paul mean by these four words? Well, I tend to agree with one commentator when he says, The love of God is broad enough to encompass all of mankind. Especially when he's talking about the Jews and Gentiles here in this passage. And the love of God is long enough to last for all of eternity. The love of God is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinners. And the love of God is high enough to exalt him to heaven. Oh, how great is the vastness of God's love. These famous words that we sing here at Oak Park were written by Frederick Lehman. And he got these off of a wall of a patient that was in an asylum. And they were a little bit different, but he took these words and penned them to this famous song. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every, every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole 
though stretched from sky to sky. Yes, the love of God surpasses knowledge, but Paul is praying that they would know the love of God in the fullest biblical sense of the word. So he prays that they may know the Spirit's power. He prays that they may dwell within their hearts or that the Spirit would. And he prays that they may know the abounding love of Christ. And what is the result of all these requests? Well, we see fourthly in Paul's last request in verse 19 that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, what does the fullness of God mean? So basically it means that God is pouring himself into you and into me out of his infinite resources. When the first three parts of Paul's prayer happens, God's attributes begin to flow into each of us and we are filled and filled and filled some more. This doesn't mean that we become God, it just means that the essence of God resides within us. It is what we see in Galatians 5 when we see that we, the, the fruit of the Spirit it says, when you're filled with the fullness of God, you exhibit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self control. To be filled with the fullness of God is to become more and more like Christ. You say, it's just not happening in my life like you are saying. I don't feel this. Then I ask you, are you making it a priority to read the Word? Are you making it a priority to saturate yourself, to meditate on Scripture? And again, not just to check off the box, but to really know the Lord, to know Christ. And are you spending time in prayer asking God for these things? And let me ask you again, are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? How are you praying for them? Are you praying until you are praying? Do you want this in your life? Well, these are the steps to get there. And it's not always easy, and it takes time through the process of sanctification in our lives but never think that you have to accomplish this on your own because I have news for you, you can't. You can try, but mark my words, you will fail. And this is where verse 20 comes into play. We know this verse, but we can't fully understand it without understanding verses 14 through 19. And this really is an amazing verse when we think about it, and it's really a sermon on its own, so... We're going to kind of end with this verse. But Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is not us who does the work. And it is not only what we ask for. You see, I would be happy in my little feeble mind just to get what I ask for. But what does the verse say? It says, now to him, that is God, who is able, and he's proven himself time and time again, that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work 
within us. And let me remind you that the power that is at work that Paul is speaking of inside of us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Do you want that kind of power in your life? I'm sure that we all do. But again, the sad truth is many of us do not experience that. Many Christians don't. As the believers, through the intake of God's word and the power of prayer, we can all be strengthened in this way. Christ can dwell and be at home in our hearts. We can be rooted and we can be grounded in the love of Christ. And we can know the vastness of that love. And we can all be filled with this fullness of God. So I pray this morning that this would be a regular prayer in your life for your brothers and sisters here in this room and across the globe. And as we see God work in the lives of his people, may we know that all glory be to God and in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, after reading through this, Lord, and thinking through this passage this morning even, can't help but just to pray this prayer that Paul has prayed, Father. So for this reason, I bow my knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, I pray that you would be strengthened with power through the spirits of each person in this room in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in the hearts in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may all have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of God, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, and that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, and may all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations be unto you forever and ever. Amen.